Father in heaven, I come before you thanking you so much that you've given us this opportunity. I hide behind your cross now, and I ask that you will be glorified, that as I talk about my past, that those things would not be glorified. The things that I did before I was a Christian, that they will be an example for some here, or even those who are listening later, that they not make the same mistakes, but rather they would follow you in a life fully surrendered to you. I ask for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's see. Is this thing... Make sure it is... We just had it. Okay, there we go. The title of this workshop is called The Master's Plan and the Master Plan. Now, it's going to be a two-part. The first part is first talking about what would Jesus do if he was going to witness today? How would he witness to someone? So we're going to be looking at the master's plan. He is, of course, the master. Then we're going to look at the master plan, which is what I call the plan that I use to convert people or to witness to people in a corporate setting or in a small business setting. Now, to give you a little bit of background about my life, I went to a... Growing up, I grew up Adventist, but I grew up also learning some things about the world and about success. And next thing you know, I started to live for selfish ambition. I got involved with a fraternity. This is at the University of California at Riverside in their undergrad business program. And at first, I even was the pledge class president. And this, this time of my life when I was 18 was the time when I was trying to figure out where I was going, who I was going to be, why did I exist? All those different things that a young person struggles with. That was, that was more than, that was about 10 years ago now. Now, being involved at the University of California gave me some great opportunities. I was involved with learning about some of the big Fortune 500 companies. And one of the key companies that I got involved in is called Inroads. And Inroads is a great company for young people who are starting out. And it's really interesting. I wish our church had something like this. But what happens is they take you as early as a high school senior or even a freshman in college and, at the very least, a second-year student in college. What happens is you then take a barrage of tests. I'm talking you take personality tests. You take um, all sorts of tests that determine what type of person you are. You take a ethical test. You take a morality test. And what they do is they pair you up with a company. I got paired up with three companies. The first one was the Federal Reserve Bank. The second one was State Farm Insurance. And the third one was the buying program of the May Company, which is now Macy's, the the buying department. Well, to make the long story short, after going and interviewing for different ones, I was then matched with what is now the Macy's or the May Company. It's the buying department. You're basically in charge of buying all the departmental type of materials. If you're in fragrance, you buy all the fragrance. If you're in sweaters, you buy all the uh, sweaters for every single Macy's across the United States. So I got paired with that as an intern. Meanwhile, during this time, God was beginning to draw my heart. And I remember I was living in Hollywood. I wasn't happy where I was going. I had the promise of success, of making a lot of money within a short period of time. I was on the fast track for success, but I still didn't find happiness. And so through a series of miracles, 
God led me to a church where people, young people, had just been revived. Uh, what happened was Ivor Myers had just done a week of prayer there at this church. And these young people were on fire, and they began doing Bible studies with me. And so here I was living in Hollywood. I then started getting Bible studies. To make the long story short, I was finally converted. And now I was like, what do I do next? I still want to be in business. I'm still called to be a, a businessman. What do I do? Or how do I witness to others? Or how do I share my faith with others? This is actually uh, me with my advisor here. I was one of the scholarship recipients in, wait, what is it, 2002, for one of the big scholarship awards for my university. And, you know, you get a company car. Next thing you know, I, was, I got involved with, after I graduated college, I had to decide between a small corporate business setting or a large Fortune 500 company. After much prayer, now being converted, I realized that it was probably easier to witness to people in a small business corporate setting than in a place of 150,000 employees. So I chose the small consulting firm, and this is where we got involved with um, a bunch of other things. I learned asset protection. I learned about corporation. I learned about investing in foreign markets, all sorts of different things that I realized were going to be a skill for me later. It was during this time, though, that I realized that more important than making money, more important than actually going over with someone and how they can be financially successful, I was more interested in their salvation. And so through another series of Bible studies, I began to study and find out what is the way that Jesus would witness to people. If Jesus were here on this earth, how would he witness to people today? So with that being said, let's go ahead and start in our Bibles. Go to John chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, and we're going to find out two different methods or two different settings where Jesus witnessed to two very different people. And actually, this time, if I can invite my lovely wife, she's there, Candice, if you can come up, we're going to actually write some of these down on the board. By the way, for those of you who want the PowerPoint or you want um, some information about this presentation. If you leave your email, I'd be happy to send it with you, to you. It has some really good quotes. I decided to look at this. This is the premise of what we're going to be looking at today. In Evangelism, page 53, Ellen White says, study Christ's methods. If ever it has been essential that we understand and follow right methods of teaching and following the example of Christ, it is now. So it's interesting because in John chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus witnessing to someone very influential. What's his name? Nicodemus, right? So let's go to John chapter 3. And you may know this story. We're just going to look at it just so we can see and draw some important lessons from John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And later on, I'm going to ask you to list a bunch of things that you know about Nicodemus. So if you have notes and paper, there's going to be something that's really interesting. Hopefully, you're going to learn some of the things that I learned the first time this was presented to me. In John chapter 3, we see some key characteristics about this, this man. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees, his name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we see his profession. We see in verse 2, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Now he's asking for something or he's looking for something. What is he looking for, everyone? He's looking for eternal life. He's looking 
he asked the question of what does it mean to inherit eternal life? Or how can I enter into the kingdom of God? In verse 3, that's what he says very plainly. In verse 3, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then we see Nicodemus, and he says, well, what does that mean? Do I have to enter into my mother's womb? And we see that there is this struggle taking place in Nicodemus's heart. We see that he wants to make the decision to follow God, but he's not quite ready. Now, this is something that's important for those of you who are small business owners or work in, with someone in the corporate setting. A lot of people are interested. They're just not ready. So that's something to, that we're going to touch on. Now we're going to quickly look at John chapter 4. And who is the person that Jesus witnesses to in John chapter 4, everyone? Go to John chapter 4. And we see something here in verse, start in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs to go through Samaria. So here is Jesus. It's interesting because, because he is in he is in Judea, and he wants to go to Galilee, which is in the north, and it says he needs to go through Samaria. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with maps, Judea is at the very southern end, Galilee is in the northern end, and usually you would take this route and you would bypass Samaria, obviously, because the Jews did not like the Samaritans. But it says here that Jesus needs to go through Samaria. Why? Who was in Samaria that Jesus needed to meet? Does anyone know? The woman at the well. Okay, woman at the well. Now, it's interesting here because now we're going to go ahead and find some key things about the person that Jesus witness, was witnessing to in John chapter 3 and the person that Jesus was witnessing to in John chapter 4. So again, the first part in this seminar we're going through, for those of you who have just come, is we're breaking down the master's plan, how Jesus would witness to people. Then we're going to look at some practical advice from the spirit prophecy and the Bible of how to witness to people in a corporate setting or in a business setting. So the first one, as we see, now we have, we have this story of Nicodemus. Now, what was the profession of Nicodemus? What was his profession? Okay, ruler. Does anyone else know, more specifically? He was a Pharisee, more so than that he was a Sanhedrin. Does anyone know what a Sanhedrin is or was? Sanhedrins were lawyers. In fact, there were 70, they call them the Council of the Seventy for the Sanhedrin. Okay? What was the profession or what was the, what did the woman at the well, what did she do? Yeah, someone said it. We speculate, we're not sure, but we speculate she was probably a prostitute. That's what the speculation is. So right here we see that, number one, we see someone from a different job background. One is a lawyer. The other person is, let's just say, a prostitute. Now, what else do we know about? What is the gender of the person in John chapter 3? It's a gender. Easy one. He's a male, right? What about the gender in John chapter 4? Female. Okay, so now I hope you're seeing some key differences. If you don't mind writing all these differences down, so maybe you can make two columns. One, we have Nicodemus. Now, it's interesting because Nicodemus is named, right? We actually have his name. In John chapter 4, do we know that the woman at the well, do we know her name? No, we just, we just call her the woman at the well. Okay. John chapter 3. 
What do we know about their ethnicities? What is the ethnicity, the racial background of the man in John chapter 3? He's a Jew, right? John chapter 4, what is she? Samaritan, good. Okay, let's go ahead and see if we can think of any more. Can you guys think of anything else? Okay, what do we know about their family, their family background? That's good, you said rich. John chapter 3, in order to be a Sanhedrin, be a lawyer, you have to be married, and most likely Nicodemus also had kids as well. In John chapter 4, what is the type of family that we have of the woman at the well? She have the perfect family, perfect Adventist Christian family. No, right? What is it? Broken family. She's living with someone that she's not married to. Okay, so let's go ahead and we can see um, something else about this. What about their education? What do we know about their education? All right. Obviously, someone said that Nicodemus is educated to go to, he went to law school. And then we have in John chapter 4, what is her education? Well, women, most, most of them were not educated back then. Most of them. So we see someone who is educated. We see someone who's non-educated. We see someone who is married, someone who has a broken home. We have a Jew versus Samaritan. We have someone named, unnamed. We have a male, female. We have now also their job duties or their, uh, their occupations. Okay, let's see if we can get a few other things. Where did Jesus meet... The person in John chapter 3. Where did Jesus meet the person in John chapter 3? Okay, that is when. What about where? Okay, in a garden, but specifically in the Mount of Olives, the top of a mountain, right? That's where he met Nicodemus. Where did he meet the woman in John chapter 4? The well, but specifically in the valley. So we have on the mountaintop and then the other one in the valley. And then my good friend Angelia got the other part right. When did Jesus meet with the person in John chapter 3? It was at night, midnight, right? Many say it was at midnight. When did Jesus meet the person at Ju- with John chapter 4? What time of day did he meet the woman at the well? Noontime. Okay. Are you guys seeing that? We have now from the mountaintop to the valleys. Then we have midnight to noonday. Can you think of anything else? Any other differences between them? Okay, different personalities. That's good. What do you mean by that? That's good. That's good. I like that. Uh, different personalities. He's probably more reserved, let's just say. And let's just say that she's more flamboyant or something. That's good. I never caught that one before. Yes. Right. That's good. So where was their uh, standing in society? Someone just mentioned he was at the top of society. She was at the bottom. Okay, let's go uh, with another one. What about their financial status? Financial status. I forgot the book, but there's this book that talks about the effect of Nicodemus. And they said that Nicodemus was so rich that he could fund the Jewish economy for 12 years straight from his bank account. That's how much money he had, right? Now, if we were to look at the woman, what was her financial status? 
Well, she was so poor that she didn't even have people to pay to get the water. She had to go get the water herself. Okay, so we see a difference in financial status as well. Okay, now here's another interesting one. When did the person in John chapter 3 accept Jesus into his life? I don't know if you thought about this one. Okay. When did the person, when did Nicodemus accept Jesus? Did he accept Jesus into his heart that night and become a disciple? And we hear about him all throughout the Gospels. Is that when we, we heard of, hear about Nicodemus? Go ahead. That after the cross, that is absolutely correct. That's correct. If you were to read Desire of Ages, you'll find out that when did Nicodemus accept Jesus? It wasn't until after the cross, about three years after Jesus first met with him. Now, when did the woman at the well, when did she meet? When did she accept Jesus? Immediately, right? Right at the well, she was so thrilled, so happy that she jumped for joy. And then she immediately witnessed and told others about what Jesus had done for her. Now, it's interesting But let's also find out the effect of each one. The woman turned her city upside down, right? It says that when when Jesus came, like many believed because of this woman. Now, it's interesting because did you know that Nicodemus was responsible for turning the world upside down? So the woman, she helped turn her city upside down. Nicodemus, with his financial status, with his wealth, with everything that he did, him and Joseph of Arimathea, they funded the gospel so much so that they turned, helped turn the world upside down in Acts. Okay, so we see obviously some differences. Now, now that we've studied this, these two individuals, these two characters, we have Nicodemus and we have the woman at the well, let me ask you a question. What is the one thing... What is the one thing that they had in common? Let's see. There we go. What is the one thing that they had in common? What is the one thing that we have in common with this story? Okay, encounter with Jesus, first time meeting Jesus. Those are all good. I'm looking for something very specific, and that is that Jesus had a one-on-one encounter with them, a one-on-one relationship with them. It's interesting because if you study the story of Adam and Eve, what did Adam have with God? A one-on-one relationship before Eve came into the picture. And then we have Adam goes to sleep, and then we have Eve, a one-on-one relationship. Here in this story, what was the one thing in common? Was another one-on-one relationship. Jesus had a one-on-one relationship or one-on-one encounter with Nicodemus, and then we see with the story in John chapter 4, all the disciples are sent away, and then he also has a one-on-one relationship with the woman at the well. I love this quote here. Notice what it says. This is found in Review and Herald, May 9, 1899. So this is studying the master's plan, how Jesus witnessed to others. It says, he had a faithful regard for the what, everyone? One soul audience. You know who the most effective preachers are, the most effective evangelists, the most effective soul winners? Are not the ones that you see up front before thousands and thousands. But the most effective ones are the ones who can witness to people on a one-on-one level. Obviously, once they can do that, they can speak to the masses. But more important than speaking to the masses is that one-on-one touch, that personal touch 
That is the most important thing. It says, he had a faithful regard for the one soul audience, and that one soul, so one soul, the woman at the well, and Nicodemus, carried to thousands the intelligence received. That's the beautiful thing about the message that you and I have. The way that Jesus does things, he doesn't do addition. He does multiplication. And if we're able to repeat ourselves, if we're able to repeat the message, there will be thousands upon thousands who are going to be spreading this message. That's the only way we're going to finish this work up, amen? It's not through just us saying, okay, I got 27 baptisms this year and next year we get 30. No, it's I helped lead one person or five people or 10 or whatever that number is to God. They're trained, they're discipled, they know how to be soul winners, and they go and win 5, 10, 15 people. That's the method that is going to be used to finish this work. Okay, now what I've done as well is in addition to that, I've also constructed something called the master plan or in the workplace. So how do you witness to people in such a sensitive place? If you're a nurse, if you're an accountant, if you own your own business. Now, there's one person who I really admire or I talk to a lot in regards to business. At least we've had uh, a couple of discussions about this, and that's Justin McNeilius. I served as his assistant to, in, uh, for GYC a couple of years. And I used to have a corporate background and also helped out with GYC. Well, Justin is a vice president of Sterling State Bank. Many of you may know him. And he's also the president of GYC. And I asked Justin, and you know, I've been in all these corporate settings, and I've been uh, part of a d- number of different corporations. And I asked him, hey, you own like a bunch of banks. It must be really easy for you to witness to, to your coworkers. He said, no, <laughs> it's not easy to witness to them. It's like one of the hardest things to do. And I said, really? So even with the influence of owning a business, it's just not automatic. You don't just say, hey, you need to be baptized or something. It takes more than that. There's a personal work that is involved. I really like this quote. Now, if there's something that I don't like, it's wordy quotes that people have on a PowerPoint. I was looking how I could edit this quote for you guys, but there was nothing. Every single word is precious. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read every single word, and hopefully you will see the value in this quote. Listen carefully. It says, The essential lesson of contended industry in the necessary duties of life is yet to be learned by the larger number of Christ's followers. What this is referring to is the faithfulness of being an employee. Okay? It requires more grace, more stern discipline of character to work for God in the capacity of mechanic, merchant, lawyer, or farmer. Carrying the precepts of Christianity into the ordinary business of life than to labor as an acknowledged missionary in the open field. It requires a strong spiritual nerve to bring religion into the workshop and the business office. Sanctifying the details of everyday life and ordering every transaction according to the standard of God's word. But this is what the Lord requires. Did you get that? That impacted me deeply to know that that line that, that got me the most, it says that it requires more grace, more discipline than the labor as an acknowledged missionary in the open field. In other words, the type of missionary work that you're doing for those of you who are a nurse, an accountant, a teacher, whatever God, profession God has put in your way, that right there... You need more grace, more discipline. You have a high calling. 
you can witness to people that I can never reach as an evangelist. And hopefully that these next steps that we have for you today, that they will help you in your quest for soul winning. Let's go in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. After being a consultant and getting involved in the foreign exchange markets, knowing uh, stocks and options and different things, God led me from there to another company where I was a... I actually really enjoyed this one. I actually worked for a builder as the purchasing agent. I was in charge of all the purchasing that would take place. This is an actual house that we built. I was in charge of almost all the, the entire process of building this house. My sister actually took this picture. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. And there's a principle that I want us to get there. So let's go to our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 6. I really like what Paul has to say. I really think a lot of his writings, at least for me, it, hit, it really hits home as to how to witness, how to be an evangelist, how to reach people where they are. Verse 6, are we all there? Notice what the Bible says in verse 6. It says this. I have planted, and Apollos has done what? Watered. Okay. But, who gave the increase? God. Now, this is something that I really like, because in evangelism, there is a process involved. There's, not, there's usually, when you talk to someone, how are you brought to the Lord? It's not usually, oh, there was this one person, they sat down with me, they brought me through you know, 28 Bible studies, then they preached the evangelistic series, then I got baptized, then they did the follow-up work with me, then they put me in small group, then they taught me how to knock on doors, and they taught me how to be uh, involved in ministry, right? That's not usually how it happens. We know that there is a lot more than that. We know that what happens usually is, well, actually I was just sitting at home and someone knocked on my door and they gave me a survey or they gave me a piece of literature or they gave me Steps to Christ. I read that, found out who was the publisher. Then someone came, offered me Bible studies. I studied the Bible. And then after that, uh, Mark Finley was doing an evangelistic series. I went to the evangelistic series. We know the story. There's this process, this cycle of evangelism. Paul hints at that by saying that, look... I'm the one who planted the seeds, but notice, who is the one who discipled them? It says Apollos. Apollos is the one that watered them. It says God gave the increase. Now, for those of you who have identified your gifts, because part of being a soul winner is identifying your gifts, is to know what you're good at. I have this really good friend of mine. His name is Mikey. And he's one of the most lovable Christians you'd, you'd ever meet. He's gone to like every single school that you can think of, you know, from Arise to Meet Ministry to, you know, you name it. He's gone to those schools. And he is as lovable of a guy as you would know. Now, he is excellent at getting someone who is partying their brains out, living their lives for the devil. And he's, he's, he's really good at sitting down and talking to them and getting them interested in studying the Bible. Then what happens next is usually he is also, and he won't mind if I say this on, on uh, audio verse, but he's also one who sometimes forgets things. And so when it comes to keeping track of his studies or keeping in contact with them, that's sometimes not his strength. And that's where he realized, look, he wasn't good at that. He ended up calling me up and says, hey, you know, Michael, I, I figured out something. I'm not very good at growing people. And so I said, oh, that's interesting because I think that that's more my gifts. So we had this plan where he would call people, he would uh, witness to them, he would then do a couple Bible studies, and I would take over. 
So it's really cool if you are part of a church or if you have a co-worker or someone who you can actually work and tag team with. You realize, okay, I'm better at discipling. This person's better at the initial talks. Let's team up and work together. That's what's happening here is Paul talks about his relationship with Apollos, but it doesn't matter if you're the one who is the one who drops the seeds or you're the one who's discipling. Who is the one who is given the increase? God. God's the one. Now, continuing on, notice what it says. Verse 7. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that gives the increase. Now he that plants and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. Verse 10, one of my favorite parts, because I used to be a developer, a real estate developer. It says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. Now, it's interesting because the first time we see that Paul says, I'm the one who dropped the seeds. Apollos is the one that watered. Then he goes on to a building and says, hey, I laid the foundation, but someone else was the one who built it. Now, when you build a house, there's a lot of components involved. This is some of our subcontractors when we were building a custom home in Ontario, California. Now, what I'm going to try to do now is explain to you some of the things that I did to witness to some of my coworkers. In fact, these were three of them. Uh, three co-workers that I had. We were actually eating out, going to dinner here. And this is uh, another one. This is actually the president of the company. And a really cool story. He actually ended up coming to one of my Bible studies as well. And so I'm going to try to explain some of the things that I did to get them to trust me so that I can give Bible studies to them. All right. So when you build a home, there are usually a set of stages that you have to go through. Number one, there has to be the off-sites, and you have to excavate the ground. You have to put in the underground electrical. Then you put in the foundation, and then you put the framing in. Now, while you're putting in the framing, you then call up your plumbers, your electrical people, and they come in, they put on you know, all the electricals, they put in the plumbing before they put the rest of the, found, uh, put the, rest of the framing on. Then you have your drywallers, your painters, your plasters, and then you get to your finish work. Well, it's interesting because there's a cycle of evangelism. Now, if you go to Jeremiah 31, verse 3, one of my favorite Bible verses, it says that Jesus is the one who will draw us. In other words, there's nothing that you and I can do to be interested in the gospel. When you are living in condemnation, when you're living out there in the world, there is nothing that you can do to be interested in it. We have these carnal hearts that are desperately wicked. And so what Jesus does is he draws you. He draws you to him through a series of miracles, through a series of people who have come into your life. And I love what it says in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, a precious promise. It says, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Jesus has always loved you. And now he's looking for the right time and the right moment to win you. And so here we see Jeremiah 31 verse 3. Jesus takes his time trying to witness to us, trying to reach us, and trying to get us at the right moment. And for many of you who have had a dramatic conversion experience, I'm sure you can testify of what God has done for you. Then we see the two primary frontline works. So this is the first part in the evangelism cycle. 
For those of you who don't know the evangelism cycle, you can read Cole Porter Ministry, page 131. It talks about that the health message is the entering wedge. Then we have the literature ministry work, Cole Porter Ministry, uh, page 7. And it talks about these two works are going to go on to the end of time. It says in Cole Porter Ministry, page 7, there is no other work more important than this work. These two works are so important. It's interesting because if you were to find out how a lot of these big-name evangelists were converted, do you know what a lot of it was due to? Literature ministry. Does anyone know how John Bradshaw was converted? Great controversy. My wife Bible worked for him. Does anyone know how David Ashrick was converted? Angelie, you should know you went to Arise. This is the great controversy. Someone at a health food store gave David Ashrick a, a great controversy. It was the blue, ugly globe one. You know what I'm talking about? That is like, looks like a 99 cent just knockoff book. And they, the only reason why David, a personal friend of mine, he didn't throw it away was because someone actually wrote in it. He said, dear David, you know, I forgot what he wrote him. But he wrote in it. So, so David wouldn't throw it away. And he left it on the shelf. And after hitting rock bottom and all those, as you guys know some of his stories, he just saw that book just calling out at him. Now, many of you may know Larry Carter. Larry Carter it happens to be someone my wife and I work closely with because we're in the literature ministries. We, we teach at Souls West. And Larry Carter was also converted through the great controversy. And for anyone who is who knows the literature ministry work now, we have MAGA books. And Larry Carter came up with MAGA books, which is now what everyone's doing in literature ministries, and he was converted because of the great controversy. These are just one of a couple of people who was converted because of the literature work. Uh, the next thing, if you read Evangelism, page 431, we see the importance of Bible workers. And the next thing is an evangelistic reaping seminar, page 119. And then finally, you have a small group or a, a follow-up type of ministry. And that's where you'll see in Evangelism, page 109, the importance of follow-up. Now, it's interesting because when it comes to witnessing to people in a workplace setting, what I've done is I've converted these stalwart uh, terms that we have for evangelism into a modern type of vernacular when it comes to witnessing to someone in the workplace. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever tried looking for any type of workplace, corporate type place uh, resources of how to witness to people? At least for me, it's basically non-existent. I couldn't find anything. In fact, when I was working for a Fortune 500 company and when I was working in the, small corp- in the corporate world, I had to learn everything by trial and error. I didn't even know ASI existed. And so a lot of these methods were by trial and error, and then I I began to meet friends, and they gave me some resources as well. So what we're going to try to do is explain some things. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, I like this verse before we go into the premise of what we're going to go into next, and that's what to do and what not to do in the workplace setting. But 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, Paul says, For though I be free from all men... Yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain more. Now, this is a very opposite style of thinking when you're in the corporate world or in the the small business world. Because in the corporate world, it's what can I do to destroy the competition? What can I do to be ahead of everyone? How can I be ahead to get that promotion? 
And so this idea is something I want to start with because if you're going to be a soul winner, you first have to lay aside your selfish ambition. And you first have to realize, okay, I am here to serve men. So 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19 talks about this idea that when you go into the workplace, whether you're an accountant, whether you're a teacher, whether you're teaching in in a, in a public school, whatever you're doing, understand that you are a servant. You're there to serve others. All right, let's go ahead and begin. There are many people in this world who, just like the rich young ruler, they know what they're missing. They know that they need to follow Jesus. But when you make it plain to them, they end up walking away and they end up realizing that they would rather hang on to the riches of this world than follow Jesus. Your job is to help them come to that decision. You see, a lot of people in the business world or in the corporate world, our co-workers, they're deceived. They're kind of in this, this cycle, this trap that we call life. And they think, you know, we go to school, we graduate, we get married, we have kids. Then we repeat this cycle. Our kids grow up, get married, then retirement happens. And so they have this idea of what life is when really the Bible has other ideas. The Bible is trying to tell us that there is something more important than than this American dream that we are in pursuit of. And so our job is to bring people to the point of making a decision. So what I did is I constructed this plan, and I call it my two-year plan. If you were in a workplace and you're like, okay, I want a two-year plan of how to reach my coworkers, this is what I did. I'm going to share with you some of the things that I did. There are two principles that I want to give you. Number one is you are the light of the world. Did you know that's the most common Bible verse that Ellen White uses in all her writings? You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. That is the number one Bible verse that you will see Ellen White use more than God so loved the world, more than Revelation 12, 17, or more than the three angels' message. Ellen White used you are the light of the world more than any Bible verse in all her writings. The next thing, or the next principle, is you are the salt of the earth. What I realized was when I went into a corporate setting, it was usually a dark and dreary place, and people were just living from paycheck to paycheck, trying to become uh, or get ahead of the game. And so what I try to do is how can I bring light, whether through the way that I interact with them, the way I smile, the way, the way, the way that I talk, how can I bring light into this dark world? And secondly is understanding that I am also the salt of the earth. Now, what is salt used for? Does anyone know what salt is used for? Preserving. Preserving. Okay. Salt is used for preserving. That's one thing. It's also used to flavor things as well. In fact, in the times of, you know, I'm talking a thousand years ago or back when trade routes were popular, did you know that salt was the way that they viewed it or how popular it was or how valuable it was is it was traded with gold. Salt was something that was extremely valuable. And... It's interesting because it says you are the salt of the earth. And what I see is that God has given each of us a special flavor to witness to someone. He has given also us, he he has instructed us to preserve what truth is. Now, I'm going to share with you some things of three things of what not to do in the corporate setting. I find that there are some people, they get converted, and usually these are not Adventists. These are the born-again Christians, our Sunday 
Christian friends, and they end up doing this in the workplace, and it ruins it for other people who are more, real genuine who want to convert them. But for our, you know, some of our friends from the Sunday Christian, what they do is they are so ecumenical and so evangelistic that every other word is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And next thing you know, we're labeled, if you're a Christian, as a Jesus freak. So here's some things of what not to do. Number one, I found, don't do this. Do not get into an argument and try to persuade people to Christianity. Don't do that. Resist that urge. We're going to get to that at the end. The Bible says we are his witnesses, not his attorneys. Okay? So God has instructed us to be a witness for him. And don't go in there trying to say, okay, I'm going to show this person and, and persuade them through arguments about Christianity. Christianity is not about arguing. Christianity is about letting them see Christ in you. That's what Christianity is. Here's something else what not to do. Avoid unintelligent statements that lack scientific evidence. So remember, these people are unchurched. They're used to evolution. They're used to evidence. They're used to biology and all these different things. They're used, they have degrees. They have a master's degree. All that stuff, right? So... Here's what you don't want to say. I hear this from people all the time, and it ruins it. Don't say statements like, the sun is shining because of Jesus' love. That doesn't fly with people in a corporate world or in a business setting because they're like, obviously, you don't know very much about science, and you don't know that the sun is always there. Um, another thing is people say things like, man, I was, I was just talking to Jesus on my way to work. Those are other unintelligent Statements to avoid. They'll think you have an imaginary friend, and obviously they won't think that that's something that, you know, they don't want to join that crowd. They'll think you're a little crazy. The other thing that some people say is, the only way I got out of bed or I woke up this morning is because of Jesus. Then they'll obviously say, well, I don't have Jesus in my heart, and I get up just fine. So these are just some statements, real statements. I've honestly heard these statements that people have said that I'm asking you to refrain from because you ruin it for the rest of us. Here's a couple of other things not to do. Avoid getting into debates with people over lifestyle issues, especially when there is more than one person present. So, for example, there are people who are zealous about not drinking coffee, and there are people who are zealous about, obviously, not drinking alcohol and these things. And trust me, I follow the health message just as much as you do. I stay away and shun those things. However, at a workplace setting, when they're pouring their coffee in to start their day, that is not the time or the place to say that you know, coffee or caffeine is bad for you. And when you're at a social dinner, at a Christmas dinner, and they bring out the champagne and are about to toast, that's also not the place to share about the, what alcohol does to the body. Now, the reason why I share this is, honestly, there are people who don't know these very basics. If you know these things, great. I'm very glad that you know these things. Now, what I don't want you to become is a closet Christian, is to, to not stand up for what you believe. I'm just giving you some of the most common things that people make mistakes, and for you all, myself, to avoid these things, these statements. Now, here are the things to do, okay? So, in a workplace setting, I have some key things that, of what to do, and I have some Ellen White quotes. It says here, one of my favorite Ellen White quotes, the strongest argument in favor of the gospel is what, everyone? A loving and lovable Christian. Interesting story. I started my last, you know, before I did full-time ministry, I started my last job working for a building firm. And 
here, a little bit of a messy situation, so let me just share. The, this small company was, a lot of them were families. They're related to each other. Their cousin worked here, and their, their first cousin or their brother-in-law was this position. Well, it turns out that the purchasing agent, the one who's in charge of building the materials, the foundations, and all that stuff, he was let go. And I was put in place. They hired me to take his spot. Now, when the president sat down with me, he said, hey, just so you know, um, this person, we'll call him Frank. Frank uh, will be there for the next week. We have fired him, and you're taking his position. He knows he's fired, and he knows you're taking his position. So obviously, I'm walking into a very, very, very awkward position. And he said, you may have some animosity because a couple of the people in the company are also related to Frank. So, you know, obviously I start my first day of work and I'm trying to be friendly to people. Hi, my name is Michael. Immediately this girl, who is one of the most influential people at the workplace, she just gives me the cold shoulder. I said, well, what did I do? She said, oh, that's her brother-in-law. That's the president told me. That's, that's her brother-in-law. I said, okay. Well, she had it in her mind. She was like, I'm never going to like that guy, Michael. He took my brother-in-law's position. I'm going to make sure that with all my heart that I basically hate him. She told me this later. Um, well, what I decided to do, I said, okay, well, I'm just going to show her love. I'm going to be as loving, as kind as I can be. The other thing, though, is I wanted to make sure that I also held my ground, that you know, even though I was loving, I was not a pushover. If push came to shove, I was like, you know, I'm going to stand my ground. This is what is ethical. This is what is right. This is the right position for the company. It turns out that our positions were equally ranked with each other. We were both considered as managers. And so we had a lot of... But buttons in the beginning. We would butt heads. But the thing is, because I showed her love, because I would do things for her, she then realized, wow, actually, I, I really admire this person. She began to say later on, after a year and a half, probably took about a year for that ice to thaw, she said, man, I really hated you when you joined. You know, I really did not like you. And I said, what did I ever do to you? She said, nothing. You just took my brother-in-law's position. Um, I, have, I really have began to see... Christ in you, and I really see that you are a Christian, and because of that, I, I just want to say sorry. So this is actually something that she did to me later. She actually said she was sorry, and to this day, she is someone who I keep in touch with today, with her and her husband. My wife and I, will, if we're in town, we'll try to have dinner with them, and I'm going to talk about more about some of the things I did to witness with her. The other thing, now obviously you can't just be a loving Christian and be a sloppy Christian. The other thing is you need to be excellent. You need to have excellence. I love what Ellen White says in Review and Herald, November 30, 1886. Let all within the sphere of our influence be partakers of whatever of excellence we may possess. It's one thing to be a loving Christian, but let's just say that I was late for work every day. Let's just say that my projects were terrible and they weren't done with professionalism. Let's just say that I was the person who everyone looked at with disdain in the company, saying, man, this guy is our weakest link and we can't wait for him to get fired or quit his job. How easy would it be for me to witness to someone? Hey, you know, I just want to tell you I'm a Seventh-day Adventist even though I'm the worst person at the job. Obviously, it would be very difficult. And so I really love what this statement says. It turns out that God really blessed. Um, I actually did a really good job, according to the CEO of the company, saved them over $500,000 in money uh, with the different subcontractors that I was dealing with and working with. And 
they said, man, we, you just took this position and ran with it. And I brought a lot of profits to the company. And because of that, they were willing to listen to me. They were willing to put up with my silly diet. They were willing to put up with me not taking part in the company socials and drinking. They are willing to put up with me not uh, drinking coffee in the mornings with them. They are willing to put up with me not eating at the steakhouses with them when they'd all go. They were willing to put up with me with all my peculiarities because I was excellent. Because the work that I did was something that they realized that they, you know, we need someone like this in our company. And God will bless you, and he will bring you to a position of influence. You just need to be faithful. This brings us up to our next point, and that one is this one. Review and Herald, June 16, 1903. It says, he stands firm in Christ, and his steps do not slide. Whatever you do in a workplace, never compromise. Not once. Never. I remember in the beginning when I was working there and, you know, they had a big, huge gala on Saturday in the city of Ontario, California. They were going to come. I believe it was the mayor of, no, it was Montclair. And they were going to have a ribbon-cutting ceremony for this, for this particular project of all these brand-new homes we were building. And they asked me to be the keynote speaker. And I was the keynote speaker the first time. And they said, you did such a great job. We would like you to represent the company again. And the newspaper from the city will be there. The mayor will be there. And we would like you to be the, the one to give the opening address. Turns out it was on a Saturday. And I said, I couldn't do it. And, of course, this is what they had scheduled. The city of Colton and everyone else said it's going to be on Saturday. And so I didn't end up going. And there were a couple of events, big events, that I turned down on Saturday till they finally got the point, this guy's not going to budge. The same thing would came to our, our diet. I remember the first time I sat down with the, the CEO of the company and the vice president. We were at a meal, and they had these really big, huge you huge orders of steak or whatever it is, and they saw that I got a garden burger, you know. And as I was eating my garden burger, they said, well, why are you vegetarian? And I just said, well, I just, it's something that I, re- I was convicted on when I was a kid. I read the story of Daniel, and at six years old, even though my parents were eating meat and everything, I decided that I wanted to be vegetarian. They said, wow, well, that's very, very, we admire that, even though we love our, our steak. And then after that, it was funny. There was also someone, a guest that they had, they had invited. And it turns out that I try to stay away from dairy products as well. And he said, well, you do, of course, eat you know, cheese and drink milk. And I said, well, you know what? Actually, a couple of years ago, I just tried to stay away from that. And it's funny because it turned out to be a very interesting conversation where he was trying to, to sway me in one direction. And the president of the company was there, and he was able to see that it didn't matter who was talking to me. Um, I was principled. And even though he didn't agree with it, he realized that I wasn't going to budge. And it didn't matter if it was a Christmas party. It didn't matter if it was out of work time. It didn't matter what time or when it was that I was hanging out with them. They knew that I had my principles, and there was no way on earth, no matter what, that I was going to budge on those principles. And what I realized later on is that gave greater admiration. It gave me a chance to really influence them. In fact, one time... We were leaving. It was after 5 o'clock. I was leaving to teach a Bible study about 30 minutes away. And the president of the company, who has a very fancy Mercedes-Benz, he said, where are you going? I said, I'm actually going to teach a Bible study. And he said, well, you know, it's interesting, but I think I've missed my Bible study. He went to Calvary Chapel. He says, can I, can I go to your Bible study? I said, sure. Uh, it's 30 minutes out of the way, and, you know, you have to drive almost an hour worth of driving. 
no, it's fine, I'll just follow you. And he came, it was actually, the Bible study I taught it was at La Sierra University. So he, you know, if you've been to a university, you know that the parking obviously is tough, you have to get out, you have to go in. And then I taught at the library. And so he followed me all the way up, and I have Bible studies with a bunch of 16, 17, 18 year olds in college and you know high school people that would sometimes come as well and there was like 10 people who are like 18 years old and then we have this very distinguished looking person who wears Armani suits coming in and I'm saying hi everyone this is uh, T- Tony he's the president of the company and uh, he wants to join our Bible study and some, all my friends obviously were very shocked they're like okay <laughs> sure <laughs> and um they understood I actually changed the Bible study right then and there because I think we were studying progressively about the key doctrines of our faith. And I think we were at Daniel chapter 7 that, that, that day, and we, we changed it right then and there to, to talk about witnessing and to talk about, about uh, riches and not being happy with the things of this world. And I will tell you to this day when he sits down with me, he says, you know, Michael, I go to, he goes to different churches. I said, I know that you haven't had really any formal training, but... I really see that you really are a Christian. And for me, that really meant a lot, that my boss, my, the president of my company, he sat down and, and listened to a Bible study. Well, that's not all. There's a couple of other witnessing things that I was able to do at this company. And part of it had to be, of number one, being loving, uh, number two, being excellent, and number three, being steadfast. Here are some helpful tips, tips that brought me uh, into, I guess, good grace, or I became really good friends with a lot of the people at the at the company we worked at. Number one is I began to say, okay, obviously I can't, I'm not going to go to the movies with them, I'm not going to go to a rock concert with them. What can I do with them? Well, turns out that the vice president of the company loved to golf. Now, I'm a terrible golfer. I mean, horrible. I mean, just horrible. Well, he really saw that I'm really trying to get to know him. I'm trying to just hang out with him. And so the subcontractor, his close friend, he ends up buying me golf shoes. I get golf shoes. Then I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to try this golfing stuff. The next thing I need to do is buy a set of golf clubs. So I go to the store, and I see that they're really expensive. I end up find, find, finding the cheapest ones I could find for like 100 bucks. And trust me, they were cheap. And we end up going golfing. And they saw me as someone who is a Christian, someone who, who is doing, does excellent at work, but someone who they really can't get to know because I can't go out drinking with them. I don't do all the other things with them. So here we are golfing, and I'm just really getting, getting to know them as friends. And it was really fun because they got to see I was able to actually make them feel good about themselves because they all thought they were terrible golfers till I came into the picture. <laughs> and <laughs> when I came into the picture, they not only would have to like say, hey, don't worry about finding your ball because I'd hit it so far out there that you couldn't, you know, and what I mean far out there is not in a good way. I'd hit it backwards or sideways. They'd just say, hey, just drop your ball with us, you know, and, you know, for anyone who knows how to play golf, they were just so, just would see me shoot these crazy shots that, you know, they actually started to feel good about themselves because the, this new guy actually was now the worst golfer. So it was kind of a fun thing. Let's make sure Mike comes along because we know that we're not going to be the one who gets the worst score. Mike will get the worst score. So I really was able to break down the ice by doing something that they loved and finding a common activity. Another thing was I was able to finally share some health tips with them. So whenever someone said, you know, I'm just really not feeling good and I'm, I'm really feeling horrible or terrible, I'd say, you know what, uh, have you ever tried laying off coffee for a week and instead of having this coffee, I just tried laying off that. And did you know that apple juice actually will help you wake up faster than coffee anyways? 
And you know, they'd be like, no, I didn't know that. Or you know, for those of you who didn't know this, you can actually buy the vegetarian coffee like Soyfi. Go to Soyfi.com. All sorts of stuff. So if you ever wanted to, I, I haven't done this. I haven't had the guts to do this. But if you do, I would almost be tempted to instead, you know, because whoever was the first person at work had to make the coffee. And they knew, don't let Mike do it because he doesn't drink coffee. He probably doesn't know what good coffee's like. But one day, what I wanted to do, I never had a chance to do it. I did buy some. I did give some out to people. Is I really wanted to buy soyfi, and I wanted to put it in the, the crates. And I wanted to see if they would even notice the difference. That's what I wanted to do and see if the, the high. I never got a chance to do that. But uh, one thing that I, I did was I would share health tips with them. And they realized, wow, not only does he know the Bible, but he also understand some very basic health principles. And so that's something that I was able to do because we know that the health messages are opening wedge. Another thing that I was able to do was share literature with them. I would share small little pieces of literature, whatever it is, like some of the Doug Bachelor stuff, uh, little things that they had questions on, I would share with them. Um, something else I was able to do with them was consider, consider ways to make them know your, uh, you have thought of them. So I'd go on mission trips, and every time I'd go on a mission trip, I would make sure to bring back things for them, um, some, whatever it was. And I would also share with them what I did. You know, back in, in the corporate setting, whenever you went on vacation, you would come back and you would share with everyone what you did. You, would, you went water skiing and you would show pictures. Well, what I would do is I would go to Africa and I would go to third world country and I would show them instead what I was, what I was doing. And they would realize, wow, you know, here we are on our two-week, three-week vacation going to Maui, and here this other guy is going to a third-world country helping people. And they began to realize, maybe I should start helping people more. So there are little things that I would do that would also help them see that even in my free time, I was still trying to witness for God. I wasn't out there to just have fun and do whatever I wanted to do. Another thing that I began to do was I was very intentional in memorizing their personal life. Now, I almost call this like sanctified stalking, but basically what you do is you really get to know them or know who they are. In fact, I think that I, what I would do is they would talk to me because I would sit at a desk and there'd some be at the clear or the other room, they would be there at their desk, and I would listen to them and I would hear what they're going through and I would actually have a section while I was working, I'd pull up this other document and I'd put up like facts about Linda and I would write down, because she has one kid, because I have a terrible memory, her birthday's this date, like this, all these different things, so that out of the blue, I would say, hey, how is Brandon, or how was that date you went on, or how was the, the kid's soccer game? And she would just, wow, you, you, you care about me. You actually know these minute details that my own husband doesn't care about or something, or my own mother doesn't care about. So I did whatever I could to just really get to know them and show how much I love them. Um, something else was remember birthdays. Like for whatever reason in the corporate world, you know, because everyone's about self, like birthdays are so important. And because I had the cool job of being the one who picked all the subcontractors, I would always get tickets. Like I remember I got Angel Yankee ticket games, Laker tickets, concert tickets, everything you could think of. I got tickets because they wanted my business. And so what I did for Linda, I'm calling her Linda, because she, she, she actually I let her listen to Audioverse and she loved it. Um, I... I remember that it was her birthday, and her favorite team is the Yankees. And so I called my subcontractor and said, hey, do you have any Yankee Angel tickets? And my subcontractors know that I don't really go to, to those games and stuff, and they're just curious. Why, why do you want these tickets? And I said, well, that's because someone in my work, it's her birthday, and I want to give it to them. And they're like, oh, that's really nice. So I remember Linda, you know, this is the, this is the girl who, who didn't like me because I took the place of her brother-in-law. 
uh, I remember it was her birthday, and I said, hey, you know, I got you something for your birthday. She goes into her office, and she sees Yankee tickets. And I can't tell you how hard she screamed. She screamed through the whole office. You could hear everything. That, wow, someone actually got me Yankee tickets, you know, and I, it was free. It was just a phone call. But I, was, I paid attention to detail. I realized who her favorite team was. I, I found out who my subcontractors are. Can I, I, I found I can actually get those things for her. Um, the last one is something that's really important. I was really dedicated to praying for them. I prayed really hard for them that someone would witness to them or that their hearts would be open. In fact, there's a subcontractor. His name is Rudy. And he tried, he's been married, I think, for five years. And for five years, he was trying to have kids, couldn't have kids. I sat down with him. He took me out for breakfast. And I said, let me pray for you. He knew I was Christian. He knew my standards. And he says, hey, don't worry about it, man. I just realized I'm not going to have kids. You know, we just have certain medical complications. I said, let me just pray for you. I prayed for him. And it turns out that... Um, I didn't even know about this because he's a subcontractor, so I saw him like three months later. And out of the blue, after three months later, I said, hey, just out of curiosity, I remember we sat down together. I actually prayed for you about the pregnancy. Uh, Did your wife get pregnant? He said, you won't believe it. After you prayed for me, we had a doctor's appointment. At the doctor's appointment, um, we found out that my wife was actually pregnant. And so it was really interesting. Like, God will give you these moments of influence, but you have to be willing to go out there and make yourself ready for those moments of influence. And so I realized that not only was I just really conscious of how I witnessed to them, how I remember them, how I love them, but I also took time to pray for them, and I showed that type of faith. I said, well, hey, look, you've tried everything. Let me pray for you. And my God says that he'll supply all your needs. My God says I can do all things through him. So let me just pray. And, you know, you can share a couple of Bible promises, like Matthew 7, 7, ask and you shall receive. You can share Matthew 21, 22, believe, um, if, believing all things, you shall receive those things in prayer. And then um, you have 1 John 5, 14, if, uh, about having the confidence in him that he listens to your prayers. Now, at the end of two years, what I was going to do, let's see, how much time do we have? We only have a few minutes left. I realized that this was going to be a two-year plan. So at the end of two years, what I did is I made an appeal to two of the coworkers who, and one of them was Linda, who I had spent an enormous amount of time, and her fiancé. And I spent a lot of time with them. They actually were Christians, and they saw how I lived my life. They saw that I believe in the Sabbath. And what I decided to do was after two years of them getting to know me, after two years of, of following what I shared with you, I made an appeal with them. I took them out to dinner, and I said, look, Linda and uh, call him Jim. Linda and Jim, you guys are dear friends of mine. And I have never pushed religion or anything. I have always respected you in the workplace. But I would like to show you seven Bible studies that I think would change your life. Would you agree to sit down and have seven Bible studies with me? One after the other, just week after week. It's a seven-week commitment, one-week Bible study each. And they actually said yes. Now, right here are the seven Bible studies that I actually prepared and was ready to give. These are them. The first one that I was going to do, and you can change up the order depending upon who they are, is 
standards. And what I mean by standards is not talking about you know, the, the greater things, like some people talk about modesty or jewelry. What I'm talking about is just the health message, that our body is the temple of God. So, for example, they have noticed through all the company um, times, that, the times that we've sat together, they've noticed that I eat differently. They notice that I don't drink. They notice that I don't do this. And so this would be a very simple Bible study that your body is the temple of God. And that's the reason why I take care of my body. The next Bible study that I had and I made for them was about the scriptures. And this one was proving the Bible through what I call PATH, P-A-T-H. And PATH is an acronym that stands for Prophecy, Archaeology, My Testimony, and History. So using PATH, which is a word I kind of coined up, I was going to have a Bible study with them using these things. The third Bible study that I would have with them is one called The Snares of Satan. If you notice, they all begin with S. And this one would be about the great controversy. And I would make it a personal appeal or tell them, hey, even though we're working in this world, did you know that the devil has blinded our minds? That he doesn't want us to know about God and his true character? And did you know that there is a battle for your mind? And Jesus wants you to give a full out surrender for him. The fourth one that I would give with them is called My Bible Study on Salvation. And this is what I call Steps to Jesus. You have Steps to Christ. Well, this one was Steps to Jesus, and it's the A, B, C, D, and E's. So first we would go through about asking Jesus to come into your heart, believing in Him, confessing your sins, deciding to follow Him, and then finally experiencing a walk with Him or experiencing a relationship with Him. The next Bible study that I would have done with them, I actually prepared these was on the second coming, that it is literal, that it's visible, that it's audible, that it's glorious, and that we need to live for the second coming. We need to live to share our faith about Jesus and his soon return. And then the two that I would say for last is the state of the dead. And I would talk to them about the state of the dead, tell them really the deception behind there. Now that they've been exposed to the great controversy and they've been exposed to the second coming, that's when I would share the state of the dead And then the final one that I would share with them is the Sabbath, because they know about my religious convictions. What I would like to do, I would would tell them, is at least tell you why I believe these things. And whether or not you believe or choose to believe these Bible studies, that's regardless. I will still love you as a friend, as a coworker. I just want to let you know why I live my life this way. And after two years of them experiencing and seeing you and seeing consistency, they would be open for this. Now, the reason why I uh, say that I would have is because I made this appeal. I still remember. It almost breaks my heart. I still remember I brought them out to eat at a restaurant. I made this appeal. Look, it would mean the world for me if you sat down for seven Bible studies so just you, you, you would know what I believe and why I believe it. The thing is, when I made this appeal, what I didn't realize was this is when the financial crisis was happening and the housing market was collapsing. Well, it turns out that my division was bought out by a competitor or another company. So I ended up merging companies with some, another company. And also I ended up, God ended up calling me out of the corporate world and into full-time ministry. Ended up doing full-time evangelistic series, which is a crazy story in and of itself. But This right here is a set of Bible studies that I I prepared for, I made slides for, and the crazy part is I ended up using them in my evangelistic series that I do all around California and I've done in Africa and in the Philippines. 
But I prepared these studies to do them. It just breaks my heart that they were open to it, that they wanted it. It just, God called me somewhere else. Now, the good news is that I still have a relationship with them. And when we're in town, my wife and I still hang out with them a couple times out of the year. And they still have said, hey, when are we going to have those Bible studies? And so they still remember those things. And so I'm very thankful and I'm praying and hoping that one day that I can really give these Bible studies to them. What I want to end with is I need your help completing this story. You see, as I said, God called me out of the corporate world and into full-time ministry. For those of you here, maybe you're still in the corporate world. My friend Sapriya, she works at Microsoft. Maybe you, some of you work at a hospital. Maybe you, some of you work at an accounting firm. Wherever you are, I need your help. More importantly, God needs your help completing this story. It's not good enough that we are Adventists. It's not good enough that we are living the message and that we're going to ASI. More important than that is what are you doing with the message that you have? How are you sharing it with others? And I need your help because I would love to hear later on from you or from ASI or up front, members in action, I would love to hear how you incorporated maybe just one of these principles or a couple of these principles and how that people in the workplace were one because of your influence. That would be my greatest prayer. That's my greatest wish. Because there is no one really doing this. There are no resources. I was talking to my friend Sapria, and we talked about how difficult it was to witness to people in the workplace. Same thing I talked to Justin McNeilis. And how difficult it was because there are no resources of how to witness to people. And so I had to find out and do a lot of these from trial and error and had to write these down and to, to figure it out. And I finally have something that if I was called back to the corporate world, I have full confidence in Jesus that if I tried these methods that they would work. But I need your help in implementing it so that others may be one. Do you know that Ellen White says in evangelism that there are people in the corporate setting that you have influence over that you can reach that the minister can't reach, that no one else can reach. The reason why God has called you to be an accountant, the reason why God has called you to be a graphic designer is because that is your excuse to do ministry. In other words, what do you do for a living? I'm an evangelist. What kind of an evangelist? An accounting evangelist. What you do, your profession, is your excuse to do ministry. Let's close. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for how you have blessed, how you have touched the hearts of my previous coworkers through an empty, broken vessel like myself. I pray that the principles learned today, that they will have eternal results. That someone here today will take some of these things, that they will run with these principles, they will improve these principles, they will learn new things from you, and that we will increase the population of heaven, specifically in the business world, the corporate world, the working world. As Adventists, we understand how to put on an evangelistic series. We know how to knock on a door. Some of us have even canvassed and done literature ministries. But really, Lord, I see a big void in your work, and that's in the workplace setting. Help us to have more testimonies of people who are one 
because of someone they worked with, a coworker, an employer, a boss, or a janitor. That is my greatest prayer for each person here. We love you, Lord, and can't wait to see you in the clouds. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.